Welcome to the Synergist Podcast, the most man-centered theology podcast on the internet by God's providence. I'm Thomas. And I'm Nick. And we're sorry it's been so long since we put out a new episode. Life has been kind of hectic for the both of us. Uh, but let's get down to the more important business, the reason everyone is here. What you drinking, Thomas? Well, so this is kind of funny, um, but I'm drinking a beer called Folded Mountains. It's an American pale ale. And I got it from Aldi. It sounds like a Midwest thing. You know, it's I was I was skeptical. Um, Aldi is I don't know if you have them out in California. It's like a it's a discount grocery store, um, but apparently it's owned by the same people or the brother of whoever owns Trader Joe's. So it's the the food is actually cheap, um, and it's like there's not a lot of service in there. It's all the lower overhead, uh, so the food's cheaper. But I figured, hey, you know, I'll try the beer. Um, and this is the, the second one I've got, and I have not been disappointed, actually. So it's like six fifty for a six-pack of relatively decent beer. So Folded Mountain Pale Ale from Aldi, and I give it at least one and a half thumbs up. One and a half, okay. One well, and a half. I'm uh, drink- how about you? What you drinking? Well, I'm drinking, I picked up something, uh, there's a guy at church, uh, a friend of mine at church, and he's a big fan of this beer called Shakavesa, and it's by Stone. And it's basically uh, a stout inspired by Mexican hot chocolate. So there's nutmeg and pepper and coffee and cinnamon, and, you know, added to the beer. And I was sitting there. I'm like, you know, I'm not huge on Stone. I like their IPAs. You know, being in California, I like the bitterness. But I saw this six pack sitting uh, on the counter at Bevmo, and I was like, huh. So I looked at the date, and it was from November, uh, October of last year. And so it's been sitting on the shelf for over 10 months. And so it's probably nice and aged. And so I was like, you know what? This will make a good conversation piece for the Synergist. And so I picked it up, and that's what I'm drinking right now. It is quite tasty. If you like kind of uh, if you like cinnamon and nutmeg and stuff like that, it's, it's pretty solid. It's not the greatest beer, but I, I can see the hype a little bit about it. Sounds like it might be a good like Christmas or Thanksgiving beer or something. That's when it comes out, yeah. That makes sense. You've just got it. <laughs> You're opening last year's Christmas presents a little late. Basically, yeah. But, I mean, it probably tastes a lot better now that it's been sitting on the shelf for a while. Because I can tell that the hops have died. The coffee bitterness is a little more pronounced. It's it's pretty solid. Well, cheers to you, my friend. Cheers and amen. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, Nick, are you thinking what I'm thinking? I think I am. I think our listeners are dying to hear a really bad pastor joke. I think you're right. Let's go ahead and exchange jokes. Do you want to go first? Or you want me to go first? I'll go first because this one's really bad. All right. <laughs> okay. It's probably not worse than mine, but go for it. All right. Here we go. Why did the Calvinist fail his test? <laughs> uh, I'm just going to go out on, a, on a limb and say he was predestined to. Uh, or you could say something. Maybe uh, he had had a few extra beers or stouts the night before and forgot to comb his beard. But no, he had to answer a multiple choice test. <laughs> And so the best part is he just turned in a blank piece of paper, and because he's one of the elect, he got an A anyway. <laughs> hey, remember, this is not supposed to be just a Calvinist bashing podcast. Like. Oh, no, the, the Wesleyan. I have a Wesleyan one, too, just to make it nice. I'll, I'll make fun of us Wesleyan. So here we go. How did? Why did the Wesleyan fail his or her test? <laughs> why is that? Uh, well, they had to answer multiple choice as well. The problem is they answered every single one and turned it in. <laughs> Okay, you turn about is fair play. That was, uh, I think that was uh, like Fox News, fair and balanced. There we go, exactly. It's not fake news. 
<laughs> All right, here's mine. All right, this is I'm I was uh, running a little behind on this, and so I ripped this straight from the internet, and it is terrible. Are you ready? I'm it's, ready. It's more of a narrative type joke instead of like a question answer joke. All right. So here's how the story goes. A uh, pastor was talking to uh, one of his friends, and he said, uh, "Buddy, you need to join the army of the Lord." To which his friend replied, "I'm already in the army of the Lord, Pastor." The pastor questioned him and said, well, then how come I don't see you except at Christmas and Easter? To which his friend responded, because I'm in the secret service. Bom, bom, bom. Wow. <laughs> uh, Very nice. That is so bad, it's almost funny. <laughs> All right. So that has been another installment of Really Bad Pastor Joke. <laughs> So it's it's been a, a really long time since we put up an episode. I know we've both been insanely busy, so and people like the banter, I'm told. So let's catch up a bit. So what's new with you? What's what's been going on in your life? Man, uh on one hand, not a whole lot. Um just regular usual stuff. It just seems like it's been extra busy with uh church and preaching and family and the um kids are are getting big and active and having a ton of fun with that. So just trying to uh, really just trying to keep up with um, everything in, in the church world. Uh, you know, National Guard stuff has been going good, keeps me busy. So nothing terribly new and exciting, just been very busy doing the, the same old um, regular local ministry stuff that um, I'm actually, from my perspective, um, I think I think it's good that we prioritize our local ministry over this is as good as this is, as fun as it is, as important as I think it is. I think the fact that we prioritize local ministry um, is actually to our credit. I hope our listeners would agree with that. At least that's the excuse we're going to roll with <laughs> to explain everything. No, I, I hear you. It's one of those where it, it feels weird saying, one, it feels weird saying I'm a pastor. Let's just get that on the table. It feels very weird to say, what do you do? Oh, I'm a pastor. And people just look at you like, oh, that's... That, that's cool, I guess. And they just don't know what to say to you. And usually, they at least for me, they apologize for swearing right there. And, you know, <laughs> I'm so sorry for the word I've said. I'm like, well, and of course, then me being me, I'm just like, well, say 10 Hail Marys and you're good. And then they, I think they get the joke. <laughs> um, but for us, it's been one of those weird things. We've been, I've been at this church coming up on about five months. It, uh, yeah, it's been five months. And we, uh, it's, it's been going really well. Um, I don't know if we told you, talked about it last time, but we have a cat, Alice and I rescued. Uh, if I didn't tell you guys, well, his name is Barkley and he's a huge ginger like Garfield cat, except he doesn't like lasagna, which we actually tested. He doesn't actually like lasagna. <laughs> and so, uh, yeah, nothing's really changed a whole lot. It's just been, uh, working on the, the book on entire sanctification, working on a few other writing projects and just trying to, you know keep my, my feet grounded in local ministry and, you know, learning as much as I can and growing and just trying to live the, the Christian life one stumble at a time, I guess. <laughs> I can relate to that. I'm sure some of our listeners can as well. Um, hey, so we did something that we had been promising to do recently. Mm -hmm. uh, we had our very first Hoppy Hour Hangout. Yeah, that was that was a lot of fun. Thanks to all of our patrons, of course, who support us and what we do here. It's if you want to become a patron, of course, and want to help out and participate in what we're doing in this vast ocean of Reformed Theology podcast, which I actually checked. <coughs> Excuse me. Seven more have just jumped, cropped up <laughs> since the time this podcast began. So, or at least this episode. 
And if you want to participate with us, just you can find all the, de- the details at Patreon, however you say it, dot com slash SynergistPod, spelled the center way. And so, yeah, if you want to jump in and help us out with that, that'd be awesome. But more than more than not, we just thank you for listening and giving us your time. It's I think that for me is the most incredible thing that people would spend, you know, 45 minutes to an hour listening to two theology nerds ramble on about, well, basically anything that we want to at this point. <laughs> That's right, because nobody else is the boss of us, right? Nope. Uh, I've actually heard from people that I've actually, so cool story. I guess I, I don't think I've told the story. I huh. actually met someone in Bloomington, um, who connected with me via Facebook because Bruxy Cavey shared, um, the interview that we did with him. And so he liked the interview, found me on Facebook, realized we were in the same town and we've actually gotten together and hung out. So I have made a real life in-person friend because of this podcast. So I just think you know, the internet is pretty cool. The internet can be. The internet is not just a place of evil and, uh, you know, scum of the earth, Moss Eisley style. I actually met a guy too. He, uh, I, I forget, I'm trying to remember his name. I know him by his Twitter name, Dialectical Dude, and he came out and he came to the church I'm at. You know, oh, I listen to the synergist. I've heard about you guys and all that sort of stuff. And he just showed up one day, and you know, you know, as a pastor, you know, you greet everyone, as, you know, as they're coming out of the service. You know, hi, how you doing? And he came out and he's just like, oh yeah, da da da, synergist. I was like, I, I, I just, my mind was blown. I'm like, one, why on earth would you come here for the synergist? That is insane. And two, it was just a really cool experience to meet like someone that I've t- retweeted. <laughs> you know what I mean? oh yeah i retweeted you once you know <laughs> that's so, so awesome it's, yeah it's just it's a really cool thing so we we really appreciate just anyone taking the time to just hang out with us and it was cool just to meet the guy and i know there's more people in the area and it's it's just been a lot of fun that is very cool and we we are especially thankful to our patrons who, who give so faithfully and as a reminder if you want to join us for our next hoppy hour it's not scheduled yet but uh even at our lowest level one dollar a month you can join in on hoppy hour and suggest topics for future episodes uh, but again thanks for giving thanks for listening thanks for being with us we just praise god that in his um you know divine providence and uh, sovereignty that he has ordained this podcast to help us interact with people that we've never met before so Cheers Cheer, to them. Cheers to them. Cheers to them. <laughs> so let's uh, let's recap. I know it's been a while since we have um, put out an episode, but uh, before we did some of our interviews with some very cool people, we were doing a series called "What Is the Gospel," and we've uh, we looked at the gospel in the Gospels, the four Gospels. We've looked at the gospel uh, in Paul. We've you know sort of talked about the way in which the gospel's been truncated in much of evangelicalism to refer only to salvation or or only um, matters of justification. Um, and we've seen how in in evangelical circles, and especially in more um, conservative or reformed uh, evangelical circles, that matters of ethics have sort of been considered hashtag not the gospel. Right. And I think we all have seen, at least especially as, as we read the synoptic gospels and the gospel of John, especially as we'll see today in Paul, the gospel is, of course, just so much more than that. The gospel is the the kingship of Jesus, which includes, of course, salvation and justification or rectification, if you're like me and a nerd. But also, (laughs) certainly, it includes living according to the ethics of the kingdom of God. And so too much of, I think, evangelical scholarship is willing to kind of separate Christology from ethics. And we see this in a lot of popular commentaries as well. Douglas Moo's commentary on Romans is very clear on certain things where he'll separate Christology or Christological interpretations because it doesn't work with the, the ethical outlook that he has. And so I think a lot of us are starting to kind of realize that 
in order to be have a high Christology means you have to have a high view of Christology, which impacts your entire life. Yes, yes. And as a matter of fact, um, that's exactly what we're going to talk about in this episode, which we are calling Paul's Social Gospel. Paul's Social wah, Gospel. Wah, wah. <laughs> um, as we're going to see, for Paul, the gospel had undeniable social implications, such that denying the equality of anyone based on ethnicity, gender, or social standards was tantamount to denying the gospel itself. Now, one of the things I want to mention here is is this episode is not actually in response to the major social gospel debate that's been going on the past uh, several weeks. We had planned this months ago to do this episode. We just haven't gotten around to it, but it just so happens that now as we're recording it, there's there's major debate going on um, among some very popular reformed evangelical leaders um, in regards to the whole quote-unquote social justice warrior movement and all of that. Um, and so it's just, uh, you know, again, God's sovereignty and providence in delaying the recording of this episode so that it would be relevant and timely for our listeners. And there's so many jokes I can make, but I'm not going to. So let's just jump straight into Galatians. <laughs> We're going to start in Paul's letter to the Galatian church, whether that is South Galatia or North Galatia. That is a debate that no one has solved. Chapter 3, verses 26 to 28, and we read, So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God or sons of God through faith. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male or and female male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Okay, so uh, that, I don't see anything in there that says social gospel or you should be social gospel warriors. What's the big deal about um, this particular passage in Galatians? Well, it's Galatians 3.28 is, I, I believe, I don't know who is the originator of this term, but it's been called... Uh, Galatians 3.28 has been called Paul's Magna Carta. I think Paul King Jewett, who was a, uh, a fuller theological seminary professor here back in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, kind of, that's where I've heard the term. And the cat, but the, the question is not about social justice warriorism, whatever that is, the, but it's rather, rather on the categories that Paul lists and the implications. So, for example, Jew and Gentile, slave and free, male and female, these are major social distinctions in the ancient world. Jew, Gentile, ethnicity, slave-free, economic or social class, or what have you, which can be impacted by Jew or Gentile, male and female gender. And so you also have the issue of, of overlap here. You can have you know, a Jewish woman is different from a Gentile woman, and a slave, a Jewish slave is different from a Gentile slave. So even within these uh, distinctions, there is overlap, which creates a lot of complexities within these social distinctions, and all of these people are in Paul's churches. And so the idea that there would be actual equality among these groups would have been radically unthinkable in Paul's day because you don't have everything in the ancient world, as I understand it, is predicated on, one, hierarchy, and two, um, distinctions to the point where everyone knows their place. And so I think that's kind of where a lot of the idea comes in from Paul's language and why a lot of people are resistant to reading Paul in this kind of rather basic way, in that Paul is undoing these divisions not distinctions per se, but divisions that will then obliterate, you know, social hierarchies. Now, hold, hold on a second. You're saying that Galatians 3, 26 through 28 is about more than just spiritual equality? Because when I hear a lot of evangelicals and Reformed folks talking about this passage, they, they, they emphasize that this is just, it's a spiritual 
spiritual reality. It's all about how there's equality in salvation, but that there's there's no social ramification uh, to what Paul's talking about here. Yeah, that's just the thing, though. Um, it's not. And so, <laughs> um, and uh, there's a lot of stuff to be said there. One is, uh, for Jews, in Jew- early Second Temple Judaism, there was no uh, such thing as women having to do different spiritual things in order to be saved. And if Paul wanted to actually say that, he would have used that wonderful word that we all know and love, sozo. You are all saved in Christ Jesus, but instead he says you are one in Christ Jesus. Mm. And the context is, of course, you know, you have the language of faith and you have the language of sonship or children of God or sons of God, which would include women in terms of social status there. Uh, baptism mm. uh, and being clothed clothed with Christ. These are not soteriological things as much as they are ecclesiological and ethical things. And so, and I think that's a big issue you and I would both agree on is, as we've mentioned earlier, is the, the people that bifurcate and kind of truncate everything and section everything off. You have this little piece here that's about this, this little piece here that's about that, instead of having an integrated systematic way of understanding it. And so what we know about the early church is that they actually lived this way, or at least they tried to, and they understood that this was the expectation. They knew that spiritual equality, whatever, I'm sorry, whatever the snickerdoodle that is, I don't know what spiritual equality is. <laughs> that, that sounds like a really bad Christian, like, just buzzword. It, it sounds like a, like, a, like a perfume or something, spiritual equality by the room or something like that. It's like, I don't know, it's just, they knew that equality was supposed to be something that was reflected in the way they treated each other in real life. And so essentially saying that this is about salvation or being saved misses out on the day-to-day life that these people actually had. And so for Paul to refuse to do that was actually to, to treat these people in the division that society imposed on them was to undermine the gospel itself. All right. That, I mean, that's a pretty strong claim to say that for Paul to, to treat people, to, to deny what, you know, spiritual quality, to deny equality in practice is to, is, is to undermine the gospel. That's a strong claim. What makes you say that? Well, uh, Paul himself says that. In chapter 2 of Galatians, Paul tells the story of when he had to confront Peter, or Cephas, which is a little weird thing too, but when he confronts Peter. And so we'll read from Galatians 2, 11 through uh, 13. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, which uh, in the ancient context can mean something like a military commander confronting someone, you know, standing tall, because he was wrong. He had been eating with the Gentiles before certain people came from James. But when they came, the ones from James, he began to back out and separate himself because he was afraid of the people who promoted circumcision and the rest of the Jews who joined with him in this hypocrisy so that even Barnabas got carried away with them in their hypocrisy. Okay, so just to be clear, what we're talking about here is there was division along ethnic lines, right? Jew, Gentile, we're talking about ethnic division, right? Racial and ethnic, yes. Okay. So... By separating and eating with the Jews, Peter was, uh, was Peter in some sense suggesting that the Gentiles weren't saved? No, I I don't think there's any reason to believe that there is. Peter himself was the first one to understand in Acts 10 that the Gentiles could be saved just apart from the observance of Torah. And it doesn't seem reasonable to believe that he changed his mind about that. So this question is never about spiritual equality in the first place. I don't think he believed that. But we look at how Peter functioned or acted. Mm. And Paul's use of hypocrisy, I think, makes this clear. He doesn't say Peter is an apostate. He says he's a hypocrite. 
Um, and I think that's clear. Even though Peter believed in the Gentiles' spiritual equality in terms of salvation, he was denying their equality in function or practice. And for Paul, that was a gospel issue, because in the very next verse, verse 14, Paul writes, quote, But when I saw that they weren't acting consistently with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in front of everyone, If you, though you were a Jew, live like a Gentile and not a Jew, how can you require the Gentiles to live like Jews? And there's no evidence that Jews believe that women and slaves and children and the poor were saved any differently from men. To make this sort of kind of reductionist claim, which is inherent in the claim that, oh, this is about salvation, is to, one, assume, assume a soterion gospel, to borrow from Scott McKnight, and to believe that Jews were soteriologically classist, racist, and sexist. And there's no evidence that, that exists for this, at least that I'm aware. But we do have differences in the issue of how people are treated or excluded from, say, table fellowship, or from the, the priesthood, and all these sorts of things. So basically, you are all one is not the same as you are all saved, which requires some kind of rather fanciful exegesis here. So I, I just, you know, I want to I want to underscore this in verse 14. Paul, in, in confronting Peter in this division, says that they weren't acting consistently with the truth of the gospel. In other words, they were living in a way that undermined the truth of the gospel. Um, and I can't help but notice the verbs in that passage, right? Mm. Acting consistently, live like a Gentile, live like Jews. Paul here, he's not talking about, you know, belief. He's talking about conduct. Peter and the Jews were denying the gospel, not by their beliefs, but by their conduct, right? Precisely. So, okay, let's jump back to Galatians 3.28 real quick. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, neither nor is there male and female for you are all one in christ jesus as we've mentioned there are those who would have us believe that the equality in christ that paul is talking about here only applies to salvation but as you've mentioned there's another reason this can't be true there's nothing in judaism of which we are aware that suggested that men and women or slaves were unequal in terms of salvation right Right. Women could be saved, slaves could be saved, Gentiles could be saved if they became Jews. Uh, if they, um, but they were, even in, in Second Temple Judaism, they were unequal in terms of status. And so the, the categories that Paul presents here were categories of hierarchy, categories of status. And his whole point is that in the community of Christ, Jews are not superior to Gentiles, men are not superior to women, and freed people and rich people were not superior to slaves and poor people, um, which, you know, as you um, alluded to earlier, there's actually, there's some good archaeological um, and sociological evidence from the early church that indicates the early Christians actually tried to put this into practice. And I bet you don't have a single example of this to show us to back up your claim. I bet well, you don't have right, a single example. <laughs> right off the top of my head. Um, yes. Oh, there we go. No. We actually, we know from Paul's own letters, I'm, I'm not going to get into the fancy sociological term here, uh, but we know from the evidence we can derive from his own letters that the churches to, to whom he was writing actually contained all of these groups of people. They contained Jews and Gentiles, they contained men and women, and they contained so-called um, high society and low society individuals. Uh, for those of you who are nerds like us and you want to read more about this, uh, Wayne Meeks has a book called The First Urban Christians, uh, and he explores that stuff in detail, looking at the social class and the, um, you know, the, the culture of the, the ancient Greco-Roman world and how all of these classes you know, sort of came together and how even some of them were subverted in the church. Uh, it's, it's really fascinating stuff. Um, 
But as we've seen here in Galatians, and as we're going to see uh, a little bit later in Ephesians and Corinthians and in Philemon, um, when divisions along those lines appeared, practical divisions, Paul was very quick to correct them. Right, exactly. So, for example, in 1 Corinthians one twenty six, we have that great text. You know, brothers and sisters, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. Mm. And so we got to remember that Paul is not writing to the, the elite, even though there probably are some who are among the elite in his churches. He's writing to literally an entire, we might say, cross-section of society, probably with more poor people in, in mind, just because that's the amount of people we had in the ancient world. Most of right. the people were poor. Um, right. So let's just recap our look at Galatians. Uh, we've seen that according to Paul, spiritual equality must be embodied <laughs> in the life of the church and that the refusal to do so constitutes in a way a rejection of the gospel itself, at least in the way it's practiced, at least in the way it's practiced and how we affirm it. So, for instance, the gospel is the proclamation of Jesus as the resurrected Lord. But of course, it doesn't stop there. Jesus as the resurrected Lord infiltrates our thinking and our practice, praxis and our ethics. And we have a few uh, specific texts to discuss. One is 1 Corinthians eleven seventeen through 34 and Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. And I have some thoughts on Philemon as a specific case study, but we'll get to that in a little bit. Philemon, we don't hear a whole lot about that. That should be fun. Uh, but before we, before we get there, let's jump first to Ephesians, since um, just like in Galatians, it addresses the, the Jew-Gentile uh, divide. Um, but before I read this text from Ephesians, we've got to clear something up. Because in this episode, which we are calling Paul's Social Gospel, we're going to be reading from Ephesians. Now, Nick, as you know, Ephesians is one of those letters that some scholars believe was actually not written by Paul, but by someone using his name. So where do you fall on that debate? Is Ephesians authentically Pauline, or is it not? Uh, to sum up a really complicated question, I would say... <laughs> Uh, I, my, I suspect strongly that Paul probably wrote Ephesians, although saying the word wrote is probably uh, incorrect. We uh -huh. should probably say something along the lines of, um, I, I prefer the term authorized by Paul or overseen by Paul. There's not a whole lot of evidence that Paul actually penned these because Tertius in Romans 16 is the one who actually wrote Romans. Um, and so I suspect... That Paul wrote Ephesians, although there are some issues here and there that give me a little bit of pause. But for me personally, I think Paul probably wrote Ephesians. And uh, there are other debates, too, to be had. For example, the pastoral epistles that I think there are some strong arguments against Pauline authorship. Uh, but at, at the end of the day, I suspect uh, Ephesians does fall under Paul's um, authorial eye. It is probably the best way to say that. That's, uh, that's probably a good answer. <laughs> it's a safe answer. <laughs> that is a safe answer, that's for sure. So what about uh, you? I'm curious. So, yeah, this is probably one of my um, more conservative areas. Uh, I, I tend to subscribe to basically all of the authorship um, in Scripture. I've got some I've got some pretty strong feelings about um, pseudepigrapha and uh, uh, all that in general pseudonymity. Um, so, and, and I think... Maybe that's a, a discussion for a future episode, but yes, I would attribute Ephesians uh, to Paul, um, and so I'm comfortable including him here in Paul's social gospel. Uh, so with, with that in mind, we can, we can have that debate later if we want to have it, um, but let me go ahead and read this text, Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 11. Here's what Paul, or whomever 
right? For those for those of you who are more <laughs> scholarly listening, I don't want you to discount what we're going to say if, if you don't believe it's Paul. So whoever wrote Ephesians, Paul, um, said this. Uh, Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles, so he's talking to Gentiles, you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, that would have been an insult, by the way, uh, which is done by human hands. Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise without hope and without God in the world. Not exactly a happy place. Nope. Um, But he goes on. He says, but now, talking to the Gentiles, Paul says, but now in Christ Jesus... You, who once were far away, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself, talking about Jesus, is our peace, who has made the two groups one. Two groups referring to Jews and Gentiles, and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death, put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away, talking about the Gentiles, and peace to those who were near, talking about the Jews. For through him, we both, Jews and Gentiles, have access to the Father by one Spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling place which in which God lives by his spirit. So, Nick, what's going on here? Lots of things. Uh, okay, <laughs> so my, my first thought reading this again, I've got one thought here that I think is quite interesting. And it's the idea of representational Christology. So what do I mean by that? Representational Christology. That is, in making the two one, we are not removing the distinctiveness of what a Gentile was by definition in the ancient world, right? Rather, what Christ represents is one new humanity, which includes the distinctiveness of Gentiles. And so, for example, a lot of people, for example, um, Mary Daly, uh, an early uh, feminist, said, if Christ, if, uh, if Christ is male, therefore a male savior can't save uh, women, right? I'm, I'm butchering <laughs> her phrase, but you, 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 that's kind of the classic phrase. Here, right. that question could be easily proposed. A Jew, can a Jewish savior save Gentiles, right? Can a Jewish savior inv- in, invite Gentiles and reconcile Gentiles? And I think this is one place where representational Christology, that the enfleshment of the Son of God you know, setting aside in his flesh and in one body and all these sorts of things. You can hear my Eucharistic kind of themes. You know, my Lutheran <laughs> friends are cheering right now. Um, the, the sort of theme of the context, which is not about salvation per se, it's about ecclesiology and about uh, reconciliation between two uh, diverse groups that have been 
constructed out of enmity in the past. Um, and so by putting us by setting aside in his flesh the law and all these sorts of things, um, he has Paul, I think, here is essentially saying this is how humanity participates together in Christ with breaking down the dividing walls and all these sorts of things to render the things that people used to use to divide completely bankrupt in his body, in his flesh. And that we're, we're anticipating some things, but, but, you know, Paul's, Paul's play on words with body, right? To, yep. In his body, literally his flesh to bring together in one body, right? Because the, the, the church then becomes the body of Christ. Yep. So Paul, you know, Paul talks about Jesus's, literal flesh body and how that relates to the body of Christ. Hang on to that listeners for, for a little bit. We're going to talk about that later. Um, but I want to add a little bit of a historical and cultural background to what Paul is talking about here. He, he refers um, in verse 14 to the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. Um, you know, and the division he's talking about here between the Jews and the Gentiles was actually so severe that the Jews had erected a dividing wall, a literal physical dividing wall in their temple uh, in Jerusalem to keep the Gentiles out of the sacred inner courts. And along this this dividing wall, along this um, this wall, they had signs that, that informed the Gentiles that crossing the barrier would result in death. This is how, how deep their their disdain for the gentiles was and don't get me wrong the feeling was mutual right oh, uh, yeah. one Ro- <laughs> uh, one roman intellectual uh, is actually quoted as saying that the jews were quote the vilest of all mankind end quote right uh, so we have this deep division this deep hostility hatred enmity you know whichever translation of the bible you want to use um, but now paul explains even a relationship as troubled as that could find peace in Jesus Christ. Uh, so I, I love what biblical scholar F.F. Bruce wrote about this passage in his commentary on the Ephesians, which, by the way, was published in 1961 during a time of incredible racial tension in America. Here's what he says about this passage. He says, the church, quote, the church, as she is in the eyes of men, must conform to the church as she is in the purpose of God. Only as the church is seen to be the community of the reconciled, seen to be the community of the reconciled, can she convincingly proclaim the gospel of reconciliation to others. He goes on to say, if the same cleavages of class and race and color as we see in the world are tolerated in the church, her witness is nullified the salt of the earth has lost its taste and has become good for nothing. And I feel like we just need to drop the FF Bruce mic right there. Um, yeah. Writing in the midst of the struggle for civil rights and, and um, all of, you know, the, the, the racial tension of the time we have FF Bruce with this, just this prophetic interpretation of this, ancient racial divide nick what what do you have to add at this spot there's not a ton to add it's at a time when we've got amazing amounts and i use amazing in a negative sense amazing amounts of tension in the united states and this is being addressed by our african-american evangelical brothers and sisters in the church right now it is 
incumbents upon us to look at this text and not use it in a sense to, we might say, whitewash or render the experiences of history colorblind in the sense of, oh, that happened then, but you know, you don't have to deal with it now because Christ has reconciled us. And it's like, well, yes, but that also requires admission of wrongs, that requires rectification. It means two parties need to actually seek out how we live with one another and dealing with uh well what i mean we excluded people from citizenship in some sense you know if we if we use the right. the ephesians example right. and foreigners to the covenants of the promise and they and if you think about it this way and make it more profound people who were without hope and without god in the world by means of oppression and right. so taking the time to stop and think about history and and paul's writing here to people that have not who have not necessarily even been reconciled this is probably something that's going on in his churches right now and it's one of those things you sit here and go, the idea of exclusion from citizenship, the full rights of, of citizens, the full inclusion of people in the church, not just as a token, but as a valued member who has something to mm. contribute on the basis of who God has made them to be. Then we kind of stop and go, okay, in one body to reconcile, reconcile both of them to God through the cross, which by which he put to death their hostility. We are waiting for that, and we believe that has happened, but that needs to that mindset needs to be participated in on both sides, not just one side. Mm. And I think in him you are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. And that gives me a little hope because you're being built, which means we can look at it and go, this hasn't happened yet. But we are being built, and through the growth pains and all these sorts of things, hopefully we can see the promises of, of this coming through. But until then, we live out uh once again I, I think the bottom line is that we see that for paul or whoever wrote ephesians the gospel has real world implications in terms of ethnic and racial unity and to deny that reality in practice was in a very real sense to deny the gospel itself and so so-called spiritual unity was not enough for for paul because it wasn't lived out in practice and therefore was saltless it was not it was utterly irrelevant to the conversation and in fact damaged the conversation and paul basically says no more in the church Amen. Um, that, that's so good. And just to piggyback on what you said there, this means that for the, you know, you and I, Nick, uh, if you haven't noticed, we're white. I, I uh, Yes, I am. Yes, yeah. we're white. And so we need to take seriously the fact that our brothers and sisters of color are telling us that they are still experiencing enmity and hostility in the church. Um, that they're still experiencing this kind of division and inequality in our churches. And instead of brushing that off and saying, oh, well, look how far we've come, or it's not as bad as it was back then, right? We need to, we need to take seriously the fact that our brothers and sisters of color are telling us that, that these divisions still exist. Um, and as, you know, as the dominant race and dominant culture, it, it, it's incumbent upon us to, to listen to this and not as as some prominent reformed theologians are doing just dismiss these claims and appeal you know merely to spiritual unity and spiritual equality because as as you've said uh, as as paul has demonstrated to 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 claim the spiritual apart from the the, the equality in practice is just it's just, it's bad. It, it denies the gospel. So, so we, you know, we could talk about that probably for another 40 minutes, but we need to move <laughs> on. Um, so let's, let's shift our focus now from, from racial and ethnic division to class and economic division. Um, so Nick, why don't you read our next passage? 
Sure. And so this passage comes from the universally accepted, authentically Pauline letter we call 1 Corinthians, although there are probably some interpolations in there. (laughs) Uh, Hint, hint for our next one. Uh, But we're talking about uh, chapter 11, verses 17 through 34. So read along with me. And as my sacramental side comes out, hear now the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Yep. Now I don't praise you as I give the following instructions, because when you meet together, it does more harm than good. First of all, Yeah, isn't that like the most savage, like salty thing Paul could ever say? It's almost as bad as Galatians. Anyway, first of all, when you meet together as a church, I hear there are divisions among you, and I partly believe it, which is a nice understatement there. We know he doesn't partly (laughs) believe it. He's being nice when he should be slapping him in the face with, you know, a stinky mackerel fish. But, you know, hey. So verse 19, it's necessary that there are groups among you to make it clear who is genuine. Ooh, that... (laughs) So when you get together in one place, it isn't to eat the Lord's meal. Each of you goes ahead and eats a private meal. One person goes hungry while another is drunk. Don't you have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you look down on God's churches and humiliate those who have nothing? What can I say to you? Will I praise you? I feel like Paul's like had to omit certain things and naughty words here. No, I don't praise you in this at all. (laughs) And so I received a tradition from the Lord, which I also handed on to you. Quote, and I, we did bapt- or, uh, communion by intinction this Sunday, so this is very fresh in my mind. On the night on which he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread. After giving thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. He did the same thing with the cup after they had eaten, saying, quote, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Every time you drink it, do this in remem- to remember me. And every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you broadcast the death of the Lord until he comes. This is why those who eat the bread or drink the cup of the Lord inappropriately will be guilty of the Lord's body and blood. Each individual should test himself or herself and eat from the bread and drink from the cup in that way. Those who eat and drink without correctly understanding the body are eating and drinking their own judgment. Because of this, many of you are weak and sick and quite a few have died. But if we had judged ourselves, we wouldn't be judged. Nice little slap in the face right there. (laughs) However, we are disciplined by the Lord when we are judged so that we won't be judged and condemned along with the whole world. For these reasons, my brothers and sisters, when you get together to eat, wait for one another. If some of you are hungry, they should eat at home so that getting together doesn't lead to judgment, Mm. which is kind of nice. (laughs) I will give you directions about the other things when I come, which is the most wonderful little thing. It's like, couldn't you have just given those directions right here, Paul? That would have been wonderful. (laughs) Every biblical scholar in the world is like, oh, that would have been really nice to have that. Would have solved a lot of problems in Corinth. So, Thomas, what do we have going on here? So, like so much of of the rest of Corinthians, Paul is correcting some errors that were taking place in the Corinthian church. He'd heard about these errors, and he's setting them straight. From Chloe's people, by the way. From Chloe's uh, people. And Chloe's people, which indicates what, Nick, by the way, this little side? Uh, She wasn't submitting to her husband's headship. (laughs) (laughs) Which indicates that she was probably a leader in Corinth. I think Um, so, yeah. But anyway, so in, in this particular passage, uh, Paul is correcting the way that they were practicing the Lord's Supper or communion, which, which by the way, you know, I, uh, scholars joke about this. It's a good thing they were messing it up. Otherwise, we would have very little information whatsoever at all about how the first century church did communion. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Like, thank um, God for Corinthian screw-ups. <laughs> right? Right. Um, but anyway, uh, so he, he's correcting their, their mispractice of communion, the Lord's Supper. Now... In more conservative churches, maybe you've heard this too, more conservative circles, this passage is often interpreted as Paul teaching them that unless they have correct doctrine, 
or in some cases unrepented unrepented sin, they shouldn't take communion. Um, this is the passage that uh, a lot of conservative circles use to justify the practice of, quote, fencing the table, end quote, which is where they restrict communion either to members of that particular church or denomination, or in some cases they restrict communion to only professing Christians. Uh, and they interpret Paul's phrasing uh, of eating and drinking inappropriately or unworthily as participating in communion without having the right belief system. But that's not what Paul is talking about at all. It's not? Well, I mean, well, but that's why my Lutheran friends and my Southern Baptist friends and my Orthodox friends say I can't take communion at their church. Most of them are Protestant. <laughs> I know, I know. Same here. Um, but no, that, that, that's not what Paul's talking about at all. When Paul mentions divisions in verse 17, he's not talking about doctrinal divisions or belief divisions. He's talking about class and economic divisions. Yeah, but... Okay, how do we know that he means class and economic divisions? Because he says so specifically right there. All the clues are right there in the passage. We just have to put them together. In verses 21 and 22, Paul says, Each of you goes ahead and eats a private meal. One goes hungry while another is drunk. Don't you have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you look down on God's churches and humiliate those who have nothing? Now, here's where professional historians and scholars can help shed some light on what was happening at Corinth. In the ancient world, banquet meals were very common. It was common for people to get together and have meals together, different colleges or associations or clubs or whatever, households. It was common for them to eat together. But it was also common that during these meals different classes of people would be present. So there would be, you know, rich landowners and men and women and slaves and free and all that. So there'd be lots of different classes of people at these different banquets. And at these banquets, it was very common for these different classes of people to be seated in different places and served different quantities and qualities of food in drink. Um, even in meals that most closely resembled our potlucks or our pitchins, the rich would often share among themselves and the poor would get less. So, so at, at these meals, you would have the, the rich people and they would get the best food and the best wine and the most of it. And then lesser quality food and wine, as well as lesser quantities of, of food and drink, would be presented to people down the totem pole of social status. Um, and this Thomas, was just Thomas, we know Thomas we know that doesn't happen in our churches not at all that doesn't <laughs> never, happen never no never. no there's no there's not no at class. our potlucks baby not at our Baptist potlucks anyway I'm sorry I'm just playing with you go ahead uh, so anyway I, I want to read to you uh, a, a quote from the first century Roman poet um, uh, Martial or Marshall um, here's what here's one of the things that he says he says since I am no longer invited to dinner at a price as formerly in other words he, he at, at one time he probably had to pay to come to those banquets but now it seems he doesn't need to he says since I'm no longer invited uh, to dinner at a price as formerly why don't I get the same dinner as you you take oysters he complains fattened in the lucrine pool I cut my mouth sucking on a mussel you have mushrooms, I take pig fungi. You set with turbot, I set with bream. A golden turtle dove fills you up with its outsized rump. I am served a magpie that died in its cage. 
Why do I dine without you, Ponticus, when I'm dining with you? Let the disappearance of the dole count for something. Let's eat the same meal. In other words, it was whinging, very... Whinging, I'm the world's smallest violin here. Sorry, I know I got it. <laughs> oh, In other words, it, it was very common for people of different social statuses, um, strati, to... to have different classes of food. And it was often a way to demonstrate who was who, right? You would be told where you are on the uh, on the social ladder by the kind of food and drink that you were served very often. Um, and, and there's lots of great scholarship about this. Um, as a matter of fact, my, my Twitter friend, Luke Dockery, uh, you can follow him at the doc file, T-H-E-D-O-C-F-I-L-E. Um, he's got a really great summary blog post on this whole section that, that explains this in great detail. So it summarizes all of the great scholarship and, and we'll link to that in the show notes. But, but the essence here is that, um, this is exactly what was going on in Corinth. What was supposed to be the Lord's table, where everyone was equal, had turned into the exact kind of showy class distinction present at other ancient banquets. Uh, and the result, Paul's response, was indignation. He said, what should be the Lord's Supper isn't even the Lord's Supper at all. And not only that, he literally told them that, that those who were doing this, who were, who were facilitating these these d- divisions and distinctions of social class he told them that they were they were guilty of the body and blood of the lord uh, that's that's serious he says they were bringing god's judgment upon themselves because they weren't correctly understanding the body now remember paul's play on words on body right in his flesh in his body he made one new body of believers, of followers. And so they were not correctly discerning or understanding that in the body of Christ, all social distinctions, divisions are done away with. There is equality at the table. Um, and, and so this, this is a pretty serious accusation that Paul brings against these people. What, what do you have to add to that, Nick? Well, the thing is, uh, reading this over and over again, and and what I find so fascinating about this is that uh, Paul, in, in essence, basically says uh, along certain lines here, and I, this is how I was taught this, each individual should test himself or herself without, uh, sorry, I just, my eye just jumped. Uh, each individual should test himself or herself and eat from the bread and drink from the cup in that way. My, I was always taught that test himself or herself, usually it was himself, that this means something along the lines of get your theology right in your head. You know, make, sure, <laughs> make sure you got this right. And on the one hand here, I can see that. On the other hand, I just look at this and go, given that you have very clear distinctions made with uh, ancient hierarchies and stuff like that, you know, as I read earlier, 1 Corinthians one twenty six, not many of you are of noble birth, which probably implies most of them were of low social economic status in keeping with the ancient world that uh getting this right getting these uh you're drinking to your own judgment if you're excluding people and preserving the way the world does things right and so i think what's so fascinating here is that paul basically is just going all right this this sort of sectionalism this sort of i am of john MacArthur, i am of (laughs) john piper i am of these sorts of things i am hypothetically speaking uh, only hypothetically, of course. <laughs> I'm of these particular tribes. 
I am of this particular thing. And Paul's basically saying, not in my church you don't, not in the church of Jesus Christ. And so I think what's so interesting is that Paul is just going, no, this is this sort of sectionalism or divisionism is something that we should not be known for because we are not like everyone else. We don't worship a God that plays favorites, essentially. And God, you know, we don't worship a God that chooses the, the wisest of the best, that chooses the biggest and the strong. We worship a God who chooses everyone, including the weak and the so-called powerless. And so I think that's kind of what Paul's getting at here. and goes, because of this, you need to get your act right because God is judging you for maligning God's character and what God has called you to do in Christ and treating people certain ways. Amen. It's terrifying and, to think about personally. <laughs> right, right. I mean, because we often, I mean, if we think about it, in our churches, do we distinguish between the rich and the poor, the, the high society and the low society? Do we do we give preference, right? I mean, James, we, we, we're, we're only talking about, about Paul's social gospel. Let's not even get into what James says about, about showing partiality to the rich. <laughs> I mean, some, some really serious stuff here. And most scholars, at least that I, from what I understand, understand the division that Paul talks about here in 1 Corinthians 11 as being different than the divisions he mentions in regards to people early on in 1 Corinthians, that he's referring specifically to social divisions. Um, rich and poor, the, the rich who bring lots of food and get drunk and don't share with the poor who go humiliated because they show up to the Lord's Supper and they don't have anything to eat. Um, and let's you know, not forget, too, that Paul literally follows this up with two or rather three whole chapters on love, the unity of the body, the gifts of the spirit, and the inclusion of people who have been given gifts by God to serve the church. And so this is all a precursor to basically Paul saying in, in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14 that you need to be united as the body, and the Spirit has given gifts to literally everyone here, and you need to make sure that you're treating people according to the gifts God has given them and not according to your preferences. That's right. And that when we do that, when we allow these these societal divisions to remain in the church, it's not like Paul says, oh, you know, that's a no-no. He literally says, it's you're guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. If, if, if I don't know of a stronger way. That Paul could have said, this is to deny the gospel in your very practice. I just I just can't think of a stronger way he could have said that, but other than telling them they're guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. It, it's, uh, it's remarkably serious and remarkably strong. Um, and so, you know, what, what we see here is that, that, again, as we've seen in Galatians, as we've seen in Ephesians, that for Paul, the gospel which we know he believes is is being performed in the sharing of the Lord's Supper, right? It's, it's not just being proclaimed, but it's being performed in the sharing of the Lord's Supper. That that has real practical implications in regard to social equality. And to deny those implications is tantamount to denying the gospel of the, the gospel itself to the point that it actually leads to God's judgment. Super serious stuff. Um, I'm not going to dwell there any longer. Nick, let's close out with your case study in Philemon. Take us to church, my friend. All right, let's see. All right, so we've seen Paul's social gospel and at work in sections of Ephesians, although we would probably say it affects the entirety of how we should read Ephesians and First Corinthians and essentially all of Paul. And my point here is basically saying yes, and we should also make sure we don't forget about Philemon, which is, I think, 
If you want to understand the heart of Pauline theology, it is not Romans, it's not Galatians, it is Philemon. And so I'll get in trouble with my friends, but I think that's actually true. The shortest epistle gets always gets left out when it comes to ethics or Christology or literally everything. People are almost kind of ashamed of it. So here we go. Let's let's look at this real quick. We don't have a ton of time, but I think this directly summarizes everything we're talking about. Because, for example, in the ancient world, we might say Rome, and I think this is generally agreed upon by scholars, the Roman economy was, by and large, a slave economy. Not to say the slave trade itself was the bedrock, but without slaves, you don't have a Roman Empire. So slavery is literally in the dust they are breathing in. And it's in the dust that Paul's breathing in. Everyone is breathing in the air of social hierarchy when it comes to slavery. Uh, and so when Paul writes to Philemon, you get a different flavor of things because no, as far as I can tell, I've seen no writer in the ancient world that actually advocated for the abolition of slavery. Paul doesn't even do that entirely in certain places elsewhere. But here we have something different. And so, for example, you have the, the conflict in Philemon. You have two basic things, and or two basic questions. Is Philemon a runaway slave? You know, was he abused and was he running away and he somehow ended up where Paul is writing from? Probably Ephesus, maybe. And this do you mean a, Onesimus? Onesimus, yes, sorry. Onesimus. Uh, Onesimus is the runaway slave. And basically, we're just like, well, is he a runaway? Or was he sent by Paul, or rather sent by Philemon to Paul to mitigate some sort of financial dispute? There's, I would say, slim evidence for both uh, readings. And so I'm going to offer an alternative reading that I think makes sense of the entire epistle. And I think actually allows the epistle to be read in a Christian context where we're actually not ashamed to have it in our Bibles. So, all right, here we go. Real quick. So, Paul is addressing... Uh, what we might say is a fractured household. You have slaves, you have women involved. This is a, a, a household, uh, Philemon's house, where there are different people involved, people of status. So Aphia is called the sister. I think she's probably a leader in this church. Archippus, in verse 2, is a fellow soldier, which is probably slang for something. But in essence, if you're named in an epistle to Paul, or in one of Paul's epistle openings, that is important because that means you're in charge, essentially. And this is the only epistle that has a woman directly being addressed in the opening. Uh, and so that means she's probably a leader here as well, which is nice. I have an article that if you want to look, want more on that, just go look. Nicholas Quint, Priscilla Papers, Afia, and you can read my short article that was published there. But what we have here, in essence, is something different. So an example, in the ancient world, you have what is called uh, a t uh, the, the, the slave as tool or the slave as body. And so slaves in the ancient world were not always called douloi or slaves. They were called bodies, soma. And so a lot of these slaves were given over in property transactions, according to archaeology and inscriptions. They were called soma in relation to wills. You know, we're leaving you the bodies or the tools. We know of Aristotle's famous thing, Gosh. the slave is a living tool and all Oof. these sorts of things. And so what we have here and what we know is to be true is that a slave or a slave master. So let's say uh, Jeff owns um, Jeff owns Jim. Jeff, you know, runs a red light and kills someone. He can send Jim, his slave, as his representative to be beaten or whatever as punishment because the slave is an extension of the master. And so this is common in the ancient world. And that's where the body idea comes from. But what we have differently here is I'm going to give just here. I have my own translation. It's a, it's not too different from the NRSV, but 
well, just to give some sort of thing. So Paul begins, you know, here's all these people I'm saying, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Then he has a few verses about how he loves these people and how he's thankful for Philemon, excuse me, and how he's heard so much about him and all the saints have been given rest by you, you know, Philemon. So he kind of shifts from the household to the individual there, right? So the first seven verses, that's what he does. And then Paul says something really interesting. This is why I have great boldness in Christ to strongly command you as is proper for me to do. Rather, I would urge you through the basis of love. Paul, I, Paul, as being one who is an old man and is even now a prisoner of Christ Jesus, I advocate or I exhort to you, Paracalo, concerning my child whom I am mothered or birthed in my bonds, Onesimus. So stop right here. Paul is now advocating. This is not simply, I'm speaking a word for it. This is advocation language. This is paracala, exhortation language. I'm advocating to you concerning my child, not your child, my child, whom I have mothered or birthed in my bonds, given birth to. Probably is slang for he became a Christian. And what we have here is something different. We don't have the runaway image and we don't have anything else. What I think you have here is something different. And what you can do in the ancient world is you can loan slaves to other people. And so basically uh, Philemon says, you know what, I'm kind of done with this. I'm not interested. Maybe he was, he's useless. I mean, that's what Onesimus means. It means useful. And Paul makes a play on his name later. And so Paul said, you know, maybe Philemon said, you know, I have this useless slave I'm not getting with. I'm going to extend this slave to help Paul, you know? And so that he, and so Paul basically says this, for example, we'll continue on. And so what we have here is somatic synecdoche, right? Uh, Onesimus is representing Philemon. In helping Paul, as if Philemon, as if Onesimus had a choice, but Onesimus is therefore sent to Paul to be used by Paul in whatever Paul needs. That is not common or not mainstream in the readings, but I think it actually makes sense of the language here. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we have he, that is Onesimus, was at one time useless to you, useful, useless, interplay here, but now he is useful to you and to me, at whom I've sent back to you, this one who is my embodied affection or my emotions or my splankna, my inner self, my inner desires, my feelings, mm. whom I deeply desire to keep back here for myself so that on your behalf, he would minister to me in the chains of the gospel. But I decided to do nothing without your consent so that your good deed would not be done according to necessity, but according to your free choice. <gasps> free choice. Oh, no. And, but, <laughs> and so we have here Paul, instead of exercising his privilege, his, his sovereignty over this person, over Philemon, he's essentially not only, he's basically, what he's doing is he's giving him no out, but he's making him give a choice that makes him look good. Right? And so you have kind of a dual thing here. And so I decided to do nothing without your consent. May, it may have been for this reason he was separated from you for a period of time so that you might have him back fully. No longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me, but much more to you, both in the body and in the Lord. And so stop here real quick. Paul, on the basis of the gospel in the chains of the gospel, is a slave. Paul is a slave here. He's in chains. He is you know, he's essentially at the whim and mercy of his master of the Roman Empire. Of course, we all know who Paul's master is, but for, for the point, I think, that's, I think that's fair to say. What he's doing differently is he's sending Onesimus back as a child, as my own splankna, as my own bodily affections. Mm. He has already changed the dynamic because Philemon sent Onesimus as his representation Paul sends Onesimus back as his representation, assuming mm. that the exchange or difference 
and and this sort of thing has already happened. And mm. so basically, Paul has assumed that that Philemon cannot say no to Paul. Mm. He he can't say no to him. Therefore, if you have a close relationship with me, welcome him back as you would me. Mm. And so Paul's bodily representation is found in the slave body, the tool of Onesimus. Paul never calls him a slave. If we actually read this, he never calls him a slave. He's a slave to you. He's my brother. Wow. There's a difference here. And so Paul says, you know, and this is one of the few instances, If but if he has done you any wrong in anything or is in debt, charge this to me, which really, yeah, Philemon's going to actually charge Paul. <laughs> like, really. You know, but Paul, it's, it's fair. He's being very coy here. He's being slick. He's letting himself, if you feel the need to do this, you can do it. But we all know that's not going to happen. <laughs> and so what I think here is... Paul is advocating implicitly for the manumission or the, the, the liberation of Onesimus to be set free to come back and serve Paul as a freed person, not as Ones- not as Philemon's slave. Mm. And so, yes, brother, may you oblige me in the Lord. Give my embodied affection rest in Christ, which is, again, another reference to Onesimus. I write to you fully confident in your obedience, knowing that you'll do even more than what I say to you now. That is the implicit, I think tell towards manumission but at the same you know confident in your obedience knowing that you will do even more than what i say to you now but at the same time also prepare a guest room for me for i hope that through your prayers your prayers that i might be given in custody to you basically i'm coming to your house and if onesimus greets me at the door who's and he's been beaten and he's been ruthlessly treated i'm going to see him you know what i mean so there Mm -hmm. is he basically removes any sort of privilege or power that philemon has but he doesn't denigrate Philemon to the point where Philemon himself is dishonored or given disrepute. He makes Philemon want to do the right thing. And so, and I think this worked because at at the end of it, two things. Um, I think Philemon, if Philemon was written before Colossians, then we know Onesimus was set free because Onesimus is called the beloved brother who's coming with Tychicus at the end of Colossians to deliver Mm. the letter, Mm. which is the case. Paul, and he calls Tychicus, I believe, a, a, a slave. But he calls Onesimus a brother. Wow. He does. He never calls him a slave. And so, so there's that. And I think too, while you and I talked about this, Thomas, this is kind of a lot of people will appeal to Galatians three twenty eight here. And I think that's right. I think Paul's ethics and Christology are at work here. What Christ has done, you know. But what I think Paul has done here is fundamentally Christological, mm. and it's the same way as who being in the form of God did not count equality with with God as a thing to be wielded or exploited but emptying himself by taking the form of a slave. And I think that's what Paul is doing here. And taking the form of a slave, he's identifying his entire bodily presence with a slave and sending him back so that the slave might be free to send back to him. And so this is Paul's social gospel, in my my opinion. And it means that the, the liberation of Onesimus is something that challenges the very bedrock of the ancient economy, of the Mm. ancient world, and the ancient ways of doing things. And it challenges today people who are marginalized or misaligned and Paul directly counters to to work against the hierarchy of his church and in his social gospel and it co- confronts the our infamous legacy as a church and how we have treated slaves or included sla- or, or used slaves and it illustrates how the church should respond and that is reconciliation but not to the expense of the dignity of the human person right and I think that's kind of what Paul is going for here as kind of a, a small case study that's really good that's really good. I love that. I love that perspective on it. Um, every everybody has has dignity, but the mm. gospel has 
very real social ramifications in terms of lived equality, not just so-called spiritual equality and salvation. Um, so, Nick, we you know we're already an hour and or so into this episode, and, and we've made one glaring omission. We have not talked very much at all about the division of men and women. Hmm. Yeah, that's that's true, and but that's not because we don't value women. I, I think it's it's because we think that topic is so important. We should probably do at least an entire episode, if not an entire series, on those on that in the future. But in the meantime, if people want to learn more about Paul's view of women, I know you're doing a sermon series on that at your church, aren't you? As a matter of fact, I am, um, and and more than just Paul's uh, views on women, but really women, uh, the Bible as a whole, from Genesis um, all through. Uh, the new uh, from the Old Testament into the New Testament. Um, if the listeners want to hear more about that, you can go to my church's website, which is uh, stonybrookccog.org backslash messages. You can click on the series Unsung. If you follow me on Twitter, I've posted it there as well. Uh, the sermons are also on iTunes at Stony Brook Community Church of God. I'll put the link in the show notes. Um, just a series on female heroes in the Bible, and we're going to culminate in Paul's views on women. Um, uh, and Nick, you and your wife, Allison, have done a series uh, about this on your other podcast as well, Split Frame of Reverence, right? Yeah, Allison and I have been, our 20 episodes in, we've been going through uh, Paul's texts pretty in depth. So we just finished with Junia, who I'm told is a woman and I'm told is outstanding among the apostles, <laughs> contrary to the beliefs of actually only a few people who have an axe to grind. <laughs> and so we, we've done all that. So if you want to hear more of that, uh, more of that, you can check out the Split Frame of Reference podcast or on iTunes. But just as a, as a word to our, our, if I may, our, our sisters in Christ on this, um, it is it is to me personally uh, grotesque that we would exclude a woman from ministry on the basis of her gender. As someone who serves under Preach. <laughs> as someone who serves under a, a woman pastor right now. As someone who has seen multiple women preachers, you know, Lydia Lockhart's a friend of mine who just got a job as a pastor in, in Colorado Springs. Uh, Ines is another friend of mine who can preach fire like the Holy Spirit's just doing his thing. It's one of those, I see the Spirit working in the lives of people without distinction for their gender. And seeing women empowered by the Spirit to preach the living Word of God is something I think the church desperately needs. Not as an apologetic thing, but as a representation of the church being the place where God is involved with everyone and doesn't show partiality to anyone and gives gifts to everyone as the spirit wills. And who are you to say no to what the spirit is doing? That's all I'm going to say on that before I just go off and preach. <laughs> Amen. Uh, and, and absolutely. We, we did not neglect women because we um, don't think that that distinction doesn't matter. We're both um, radically egalitarian in that sense uh, because we think that Jesus and Paul were radically egalitarian in that sense. It's just we want to give that fuller treatment um, later on. We, we fully affirm that uh, that to deny the equality of men and women is in the same sense to deny the gospel, just as it is to uh, facilitate divisions among Jews and Gentiles, uh, black people, white people, rich and poor, slave and free, um, 
that, that men and women certainly fall in that category. We just want to give that fuller treatment in a little bit. So to wrap things up here, we know we've gone a little bit long today, but um, you know, you've earned it since we've been away for a while. Uh, just, you know, a reminder in conclusion, it's, it's no secret that the teachings of Jesus are full of social commands, right? Uh, we, we, most people who talk about social justice talk about the teachings of Jesus. Sometimes Paul gets left out. I think sometimes because, um, People think that Paul doesn't have much to say about that. So our goal in this episode was to demonstrate that Paul really does have a lot to say about that, that he was as concerned for issues of quote unquote social justice as Jesus and the prophets were. Um, but for some reason, we can often overlook or we can misinterpret those sections. So we hope that from this short study, uh, it seems clear to you as it does to us that for Paul, denying the equality of anyone based on ethnicity, gender, or social standards, was tantamount to denying the gospel itself. Amen. Well, this has been another episode of the Synergist Podcast, the most man-centered theology podcast on the internet by God's providence. Thank you for listening, and God bless. God bless.